Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Gina Vild, the author of The Two Most Important Days, How to Find Your Purpose and Live a Healthier, Happier Life. Losing her mother suddenly at 28, her father suffering a debilitating stroke shortly after and eventually passing away five years later, taught her what it is to live a meaningful life without fear. This hard-earned courage was what helped her navigate her next challenge, ending a very long marriage. Please welcome Gina Vild. Welcome, Gina, to Phoenix Tales. I always start the show off by asking one question, and that question is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be on your program. I think the work you're doing is so important because everyone is struggling with resilience in life. No one escapes adversity. And with the pandemic, it's become increasingly important. And so your good work is helping people look for paths to be buoyant and to navigate whatever hardships come their way. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you. And to answer your question, I struggled with this because I've had a a number of adverse situations in my life, two rather pronounced, and they're actually in some interesting way intricately linked. And so I thought I would share with you the, both of those and then how I thought I developed them. Yeah. So let's start start with the first one and just I'll take it from there. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. When I was 28 years old and I was single and I had a very close relationship with my my parents, my mother, who was young and vibrant and healthy, died suddenly of a heart attack. And it was quite traumatic. She was the center of my gravity. I felt like the bottom had dropped out of my life. And as I was grappling with this unexpected devastation, literally two months later, 72 days later, my brilliant father, also young and healthy, whom I adored, in his own grief, suffered a massive right brain stroke. And when I refer to this, I often say I lost my parents within 72 days. My father did not die. He was a quadriplegic and had serious brain damage. And so my family went through the most horrific devastation. And they were at the heart of my existence. And in effect, they were gone within 72 days. And I lost my North Star. And this happened when you were 28. So can you tell us a little bit about that period of your life? Yeah, I was single. I was alone. I was working as the deputy communications director for the governor of Ohio. And I wasn't sure how I would move forward, becoming engaged and marrying on the heels of that, the man that I was married to for 28 years. And when I was not young in my life, my 28-year marriage ended by my choice. But it was a devastating second event to have to start to rebuild my life at a late age. 
So can we go back to your um, the loss of your parents? I would imagine the shock of losing your mom was one devastation and then to have to turn around and face the reality of having a father who is present physically, but not present, right? So did you serve as a caretaker or like, how did you navigate taking care of him for the duration of his life? Well, there were only five years and he was in an institution because he could not care for himself. And I always say I I had four mothers growing up because I had my mother and then she had two sisters and my father had a sister and they did rally. And so I think dealing with it so young, it brought some profound realizations. And I have a sign hanging in my home and it's a quote by the Buddha. And it says, the trouble is you think you have time. And I think that's something we should think about every day in our life. And it's something I think about often. Well, I think it's so interesting that you were so close to your parents. Did you live nearby or had you moved away? I had moved to from, I'm from Cleveland, outside of Cleveland, a little town called Independence, Ohio, which is as idyllic as it sounds. And I was offered the job as deputy communications director for the governor of Ohio, Governor Richard Celeste. And I did move two hours from Cleveland, but we were so attached. I drove home almost every weekend. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I find that really interesting because by the age of 28, most of us are fully, fully kind of, I don't know, I was fully separated from my parents in the sense of they weren't the axis of my life, let's say, right? I was busy making a life of my own. So I find that really interesting. So during the care of your dad, because I've had a couple of other interviewees talk about this experience, caring for a parent and the emotional minefield that can be. So one of the themes that seemed to come up that was comparable to, I mean, both people had very different experiences, but the one thing that they dealt with a lot was guilt. And one said to me that she felt guilty when she wasn't thinking about her mom. Like if she was thinking about her own life, she had this incredible sense of guilt. Did you experience that during those five years that your father was still alive? No, I wouldn't say that's something I thought of. I mean, I adored him and to see him in that state was awful. But what I do remember, which I find is interesting, is when my mother died and she again, I said she was not old. My father actually said to us, if something critical happens like this, I do not want to live. And so we knew not to ask for heroic efforts when he had a stroke. And that was a very sad, horrific discussion we had with the doctors because he had been clear 72 days earlier, if something devastating happened to him, he did not want to survive. He did die five years later, but it did shape my adult life. I mean, it really did because I think dealing with that sudden death on two fronts it made me realize how to grieve, how to live my life, how to be fearless. And it really did shape everything that came later. And it actually led to the decision I made to leave my my marriage when I was much older. So you said that uh, shortly after this um, double devastation, you met your husband who was- We got engaged. Um, right, you got engaged. And then during the course of these 28 years, I would imagine that 
like all marriages that are long, you've had many ups and downs. So can you tell us a little bit about, I love the fact that you draw the um, connection to having lost your parents and and having that sense of fearlessness that allowed you to take that leap to leave the marriage. We actually didn't have a lot of ups and downs. You know, it was a relatively serene and happy marriage. And, you know, over the short duration of two months, you know, I learned that much was not what I thought going back to the earliest days of my marriage. And as I think back on it, my past morphed into something unrecognizable. And at the time, I think the inclination, the safe thing to do would be to cling to security. As I said, I was not young and I had to start building a new life, but I knew that life was so precious. I did not want to be in a relationship that I felt was not all that it could be. And that had been so disappointing. And so I took a leap. I feel like it was like a free fall without a net and had to rebuild. What precipitated that? Because what you describe is that the marriage was good. It was idyllic, um, 28 years, not a lot of problems. What was the event that would then make, I don't know, for or you take such a big, drastic, dramatic step as to end the marriage? Yeah, I wouldn't say it was idyllic, but it was good and it was happy and we had a family. And I think that piece of it, I am still struggling with how to talk about it because it affects other people. And so I think at this point, all I could say is I pulled back a curtain and I found much that was there that was unexpected. So a sense of betrayal. And whenever people experience betrayal, there's a lot of questioning of your own judgment. So did you go through that? Of course. Yeah, I did. And I have what I've learned about trauma is trauma is not doesn't have its way with you and then you're done with it. <laughs> it gets triggered and it rears its head. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that decision point to get married and what I was choosing, the emotional crisis I was in when I made the decision and and how important it was to be in a marriage and a relationship that was good and that was healthy and where there was a lot of trust. So you're saying that had you not had that trauma of losing your parents, that perhaps you might have made different choices? You know, it's one of the questions I ask myself um, now and who could ever know. And I have two extraordinarily beautiful, vibrant children. And, you know, you when you rethink that question, you rethink everything. But I presented to you as a situation that was, and I do think on that. And I do think about how trusting I have always been in my life. You know, my mother always used to say, trust everybody. And I did. And I think when you are raised in an environment where you have so much love, and I did, as I said, I had the equivalent of four mothers, four women who, and my father, who would have walked through fire for me, it makes you confident about the world. It makes you believe the world is safe and can be trusted. So to have that sense of confidence about other people, when you talk about lifting of the curtain and finding out that perhaps what you thought was reality was not, what were the first things you did once the shock wore off? So I will say this, that I I think it goes back to learning to meditate. 
And I think that's really interesting for anyone who's listening. And about seven, eight months earlier, but I think in learning how to do mantra meditation and being a real adherent to it and practicing it regularly, really with the intention of making sure I was getting everything done with the book, my mind went quiet. And I was able to think and to see things that I may have tucked under the rug. Obviously, I'm a huge proponent of mindfulness practice um, in one's life. The thing that I find fascinating, because as a practitioner, so you hadn't been doing it very long before these realizations started to come to you? No, I mean, it was fascinating how meditation changed my life. I initially had a friend of my co-author, Sanjeev Chopra, um, Adrian came because I wasn't getting done what I needed to get done. And Adrian met with me to see what was the holdup. And I was like, have you seen my life? It's so complicated. And he asked me initially until I could learn, formally learn meditation to run without headphones because I was a long-term runner. I ran from the time I was in my early 20s. And I said, I don't think I can run without headphones. And I was going on vacation the following week and I ran on the beach without headphones and found what I had put off for many months. And then I learned meditation in January and by March, my whole life was different. What were the clues or the things that you started to notice about your life that made you start to question the life that you were living? And I haven't quite, to be honest, figured out how to talk about it. But I do think in the long run, what I experienced was an awakening. And I think it was a really positive thing an experience for my life. And rebuilding my life was an experience onto itself. And how do you start late in life to venture out in the world? You know, you have financial insecurity and personal insecurity and relationship insecurity and all of that. And how do you build again? Well, I think that's all great, but I would love for you to ground it for the audience. So was it that you started to feel a sense of distance, like, you know, emotional distance that you and your husband had had, but you just never really acknowledged or saw. Or if you could try to ground it for the audience without giving up any, you know, specific details, just because I think a lot of us feel that we think we know our lives, right? We're in our lives. We think we know what's happening. So this idea that things start to unravel in a way that you see things differently is really interesting. Yeah. I think that I was known and still am, and hopefully I can maintain that. And I had to make a decision to maintain my trust in people because who wants to go out into the world distrusting? And so I think I just became less comfortable and I started looking for things and lo and behold, I started finding things. And I think it was good. I think we should live, as Socrates said, an examined life. And I did not really do that. And I think it was hard. I think losing my parents so young, I wanted that security. So when you said that you felt uncomfortable and you started to look for things, right? Like, why do I feel uncomfortable? Do you think that those signs were always there, but you just did not see them or chose to not see them during the course of your marriage? Yes and no. I mean, not no. There was nothing that overtly present that I had missed, but I was a very trusting person. So I was very easy to be taken advantage of 
is all I, you know, I could say. But the point is really that it taught me resilience, you know, you know, barn burned down. Now I can see the stars, right? And I chose a hard path. I chose to venture out knowing how important security was for me, given how I was raised and how close I was with my family. That was a really fearless moment to walk out in the world alone. I think you just said something really interesting because it kind of is in contradiction to everything you had been telling us, which is that you chose to be taken advantage of. And I find that fascinating in principle because the family background and the love that you had experienced, I would imagine, gave you a sense of confidence in the world, right? That right. yeah, that you could you could fly because you had these people always holding the safety net underneath you. And that's a gift that many of us do not experience. So the fact that you articulated as I chose to be taken advantage of is a really... No, I'm I'm sorry. That was... I misspoke if that's what I said. I didn't mean that. I said, I think there were opportunities where I was taken advantage of. And, you know, I've thought a lot about this, about do you you trust until you learn to distrust or you do distrust until you learn to trust? And I always chose to trust. And I would like to think that even after everything I went through, I would like to continue to trust. Well, and you could also flip that and say, in truth, you can only start to trust others when you trust yourself. So you're saying that you always trusted yourself. So when you realized that everything that you had believed was not true, did that start to shake the core of your belief in who you are and the fact that, you know, you trusted yourself, that you trust your judgment, you, you trust the decisions that you've made? To some degree, I found one major flaw in that trust, right? And it was significant. But if you look at the broader circle of my life, I have so much blessings and so much goodness in it. And my whole life has been a quest for kindred spirits. And I really choose to find people who make my life better. Because, you know, our journey, I learned this from all that early death, the journey is so short. As I said, it made me fearless. And I have never, well, I shouldn't say never, but I have not really struggled with that. You know, and I can remember, you know, being in my early 20s and having a lot of ambition for my life and a lot of aspirations and wanting to see the world and meet interesting people. And then suddenly I found myself plagued by insecurities that young people can be plagued with. Like, I am not this enough. I am too much this enough. Or, you know, do I have the the capacity to ha- live this life? And I suddenly remembered thinking, this is the only life you have. Life is so incredibly short. So make a gift of yourself. And it may not be what's right or enough for everyone, but you will find your path. And that was the moment all of that worrying and insecurities, for the most part, stopped. So when you made the decision to leave the marriage, and I think a lot of women who have been in long marriages and are of a certain age find that a very, very challenging prospect, whether they are the ones instigating it or their spouse. So how did you navigate that? 
you know, all of a sudden you are single, you don't have that partner, you're sort of now having to figure out how to live your life on your own terms. And what does that look like? Yeah, that was like a fascinating time. And it was truly sad. When I found myself alone and single, it was a daunting time for sure. And I was grieving and I was grieving many layers of life. And I actually tell a story and I wrote an article about this for Psychology Today where I didn't recognize myself because I was such an optimist and so positive and these feelings of sadness were overwhelming. And so I decided I would ask the smartest person I know how to heal my broken heart. I found the smartest person I know, which was Google. And I typed into Google, how do I mend my broken heart? So my friend Google had said, first thing you should do is write a goodbye letter to yourself. So I sat on my porch one night and I had my computer and I, for an hour and a half, I wrote a long, heartbreaking, tearful letter for all of the dashed hopes for my life, for the future. And I cried and it was extremely painful. And then my friend Google said, wait a couple days and then write a hello letter to yourself. So a couple days later, I did as directed and I sat on my porch and I That was harder. That did not flow as fast and as easily. But I started imagining windows opened, even though this massive door had closed, and began to envision new chapters and new love and new adventures. And I remember as I was writing, at one point, I actually laughed out loud because I began to see hope. And what I realized after the fact, because it really was a turning point for me, is that it is a very valuable form of grieving where you immerse yourself in the grief. Like Elizabeth Gilbert, who writes eloquently about grief, has said, when grief enters, get on your knees and bow to it and let it have its way with you. And it will leave and it will come again, but it will come less often. And so I think the advice I got from my friend Google was to really immerse myself in the grief. And it wasn't a cure. It was still a process, but that was a turning point for me. And with that grief, I would imagine was a lot of anger. So do you feel as though you've worked through the anger? Because that's very separate from the grief, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. So have you worked through the anger at this point in your journey? I have, um, but I'm not going to tell you it doesn't rear its head from time to time. But I will say, I think by way of progress, that I do honor my ex-husband as the father of my two extraordinarily beautiful children. I don't think people actually intend to hurt other people. I think there are impulses that drive them. And I, I do remember my mother saying to me always, you know, people do the best they can it's not like a great situation when you're at the end of the person who is dealing with the hardship from that. But I do embrace that because I don't want to live, you know, I'm writing a book on resilience right now. And one of the key factors that I have found that I am studying and that I'm absolutely fascinated with is how do you manage your thoughts? And we all manage our thoughts. What you're thinking about, what I'm thinking about, we are choosing to think about that. Do we want to relive old hurts? Do we want to nurse hardship? Do we want to nurse anger? Or do we want to forgive? And I did 
practice forgiveness, which I realized too, it comes, you have to do it more than once. When I was writing my book, the two most the two most important days, it was the last part of the book that I worked on and really struggled with it. Yeah. And I think I think you you sound extraordinarily self-aware and balanced. And I think there are many of us in the world and many of my listeners will be like, what? How does one do that? What are some suggestions that people could actually apply that will not feel so daunting? You know, this idea of controlling one's thoughts, like, yeah, that everybody wants to control their thoughts, but that is an incredibly challenging process, right? To be able to get ourselves to be quiet enough that we don't allow the thoughts to dictate. But I think there are some really simple things to do truly during this period is I've always really had a gratitude practice. And that is not to be underestimated in terms of its value. And there are many ways you can do it, Like, but you do have to write it down. You write down what you're grateful for. I do think there are some really concrete practices that you can use to elevate your thinking and to bring yourself joy. So are you today fully healed? Is your heart fully healed? I don't think anyone heals. We all, you know, there's that term for Japanese pottery where you use gold to shape a new vessel. And I think that gold is our pain. And so your life always looks different. And I don't think of it as healed. It's never, you're never going to be what you were, but you have evolved. And, you know, my life is good. You know, I have, you know, amazing friends, some of whom you know. I'm in a really wonderful relationship right now. And when the troubles come and when I think about it, sometimes more successfully than others, I manage that. But I do truly think it is a conscious process to work on it because otherwise you're letting the negative things that have happened to you in your life, and we all have adversity, no one escapes it. No one escapes pain and death and loss you know, different levels of disappointment or betrayal. And are you going to let that be what directs these few short years you have? Or are you going to ground yourself in what's important to you? So going back to that betrayal um, and when your family life um, changed dramatically, I would imagine the emotional fallout for your children was just as dramatic for them as it was for you. And have they been able to weather all of that given I would imagine you've taught them all of these practices because you practice them yourself, that they've been able to manage and navigate their own emotional landscape with this. So I don't want to speak for my children. I will tell you that they do know, and I think everyone, no one has perfect parents on on either end, mother or father. And I do think they know that they are deeply loved by two parents. And as a parent, there's probably, you can give your children experiences and adventure and things, but there's nothing more meaningful than loving them deeply in any situation. And I had that as a practice. I That was my experience growing up. I was deeply loved. And I tried to pay that forward to them. And I think that that's what I could say on their behalf, that I can promise that they know they are deeply adored and loved. And you think that that helped them navigate the emotional terrain of what happened? 
I think it helps everybody when you know, no matter what your situation or who you are, you know that love will carry you through. And, you know, I, in the midst of all of this, I had friends who just came forward in ways that was just incredible. And I actually listened, I listened to a TED talk a couple of weeks ago by Dr. Lucy Hone, who's a resilience expert who had a devastating personal tragedy in her life. And I highly recommend her TED, her TED talk. And it's about the three, three components of resilience. And she said, you know, what you think about is a choice. So choose to think about only what you have the power to change. So to not constantly reiterate and go over the sadness and the loss and the grief. And I hope that's something I have tried sometimes more successfully. I am, I am far, far from perfect, but it is a goal of mine to try to move in that vein. I just wrote an article for Psychology Today that as of right now has had 27,000 people read it, which is more than anything I have ever written. And it's on the topic of luck and are you lucky and how do you improve your luck? And it's actually, you know, another form of talking about resilience and, and optimism. And what they know in studies that have been done around luck is changing up your circumstances, not being fearful, forging new paths. That is actually what brings you opportunities to be lucky. And I think that is the same path forward for resilience. That's a great place to end, Gina. Um, So I'm going to ask you the last question. And the question is, is there a song that either resonates with you or feels as though it were written about your life? And what is it and why? Oh, it's so funny. Yes, there actually is. And I was asked this question on a call a couple months ago. And it's Beth Hart's Life is Calling. And it's really worth listening to. It's a wonderful song, but it's about life is calling you forward. And you embrace it, honor it, just use it up, you know, and make sure you take every last drop of it. As a friend of mine who died young used to say, you know, use up every last drop of life. So life is calling is very much my, that would be my theme song for my life. And how can people find you? Oh, thank you. And I am looking for anyone who would like to share their stories of resilience and buoyancy with me. And I am at Gina.Vild at gmail.com. Gina.Vild at gmail.com. Great. Thank you so much for uh, doing this. And I'm sure that people will have a lot of um, questions for you and interest. And I'm really grateful that you were able to make the time to come on to my podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it, I'ma say this because. We gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, woulda. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. 
If you think you have a phoenix tail, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.